everyone. I'm Emil Dakun, founder and CEO of Mercury. Uh, yeah, as I said, we're talking about structure in your company, equity, board, all that kind of stuff. Our guest is John Bautista. John is a partner at Auric. Uh, he's actually also a rare lawyer that's a co-founder at two companies, Long Term Stock Exchange and Clerky. Uh, he's been doing, I don't even know how long you've been doing startup law, at least as long as I've been doing startups and probably twice as long. <laughs> uh, so we're very lucky to have John here to kind of uh, jump into these these topics. Uh, we'll be talking about founders preferred, composing your board, how to do vesting, how to do equity refreshers, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I wanted to start off at like kind of right in corporation. Uh, what a, and like, let's, you know, maybe skip the super obvious stuff. Like what are things that you think are like interesting like optimizations that like people don't think about but like where they really have to do right at the start and the you know the first kind of either before incorporation or just in the first few months of incorporating right uh prior to incorporation one, one of the most important things is uh, uh determining who you're going to found the company with and uh you know being you know absolutely comfortable with your co-founders and for uh, tax reasons and other reasons, it's important if you can uh, to form the company and to have everyone as co-founders uh, join the company, be issued their stock, their equity at the same time. So to figure out those allocations of ownership, to determine what the vesting schedule will be uh, as between the founders and to determine what is the uh, IP, if there is some pre-existing IP that the various founders have worked on uh, as part of the project, what IP is going to go into the company and be part of the enterprise and what what IP is not, what IP is going to remain with the uh, with the founder as individually owned IP. So there are, you know, decisions to be made uh, prior to incorporating. Most companies will incorporate in Delaware and that's where 99 0.9% of all U.S. corporations incorporate. If you do want to do founders preferred shares, you have to also do them in corporation, right? Uh, can so, you talk a little bit about what founders preferred is? As most of you know, um, the standard corporation, when you form a company in Delaware, you're uh, for the most part, just going to issue common stock to the founding team and preferred stock is stock that's reserved for investors. The main difference between preferred stock and common stock is preferred stock has a liquidation preference. So, um, it, it, which gives the investors downside protection. So when co companies are formed and the overall structure for companies in Silicon Valley, and this goes back 50 years now, is to have a two-class system preferred stock for investors, common stock uh, for founders and employees. And among common stock, uh, as employees join the company a bit later in its life, employees actually will not receive or buy the common stock. They will actually be granted a stock option, uh, which will have an exercise price, um, which is the right to buy uh, the common stock in the future once they vest in that common stock. But it's important to understand the backdrop here, which is historically, there has only been two classes of stock in companies preferred for investors and uh, common stock for founders. One of the other reasons besides liquidation preference 
which is what investors are gonna demand when they invest in your company, is by having two classes of stock, you can achieve a lower value for the common stock. And, and that's important because uh, as you know, equity is a major tool for attracting and retaining employees of tech companies. It's not you know, just the cash compensation, it's not just the cash bonus that employees are eligible for, but it's the equity upside. And by having two classes of stock and by doing the valuation on that common stock, which companies do from time to time, a so-called 409A valuation, the preferred stock, because it's a superior security, uh, enables companies to depress the value of the common stock for purposes of these valuations. And this is really important because when companies grant stock options to employees, they want to have the lowest exercise price possible on that common stock uh, to give their employees the greatest implied value on that option. It's a Black-Scholes calculation. The lower the exercise price, the more valuable the option. The more valuable the option, the fewer shares you as founders actually need to grant to employees uh, to entice them to join and stay with your company. And therefore, the less dilutive it is to you as founders, if you have a depressed value of your common stock, it sounds counterintuitive, but that's what we strive to achieve. And for early, uh, uh, early in the life of companies, uh, we try to get to a value of the common stock that's somewhere in the neighborhood of between 15 and 30% of the preferred stock price. That preferred stock price is what's been negotiated with investors in your Series A and Series B financing rounds. So th what that means is a 70% to 85% discount. Um, and that's, again, a, an extremely valuable security to be able to offer uh, to your future employees. It doesn't mean that's what the common stock is actually worth. It's still one share of stock um, and a slice of the company, the enterprise value of the company, but this is a tax and accounting mechanism uh, to help you um, with um, employee incentives. So that's the background. Um, then uh, several years ago, as I mentioned, uh, we created something called Founders Preferred Stock. Um, as Ahmad had referenced, um, normally Founders Preferred Stock is just offered for founders and it can be put in place either at the time of formation of the company which is the best time to do it or it can be done uh, after formation but what's really important is that if you're going to put founders preferred in place that it be done before you issue preferred stock to investors so if the company is raising capital through a convertible note if the company is raising capital through a safe financing, uh, you're okay. But the moment that you sell preferred stock to investors and you've created then this dual class uh, situation in your company uh, for tax reasons, um, it's not going to be possible to issue founders preferred stock to the founding team. So let me describe uh, what founders preferred stock is. Um, founders preferred stock is a little bit confusing by its name because it actually is not preferred stock. Uh, what it is, is it's a form of common stock 
that's just like the common stock that the founders will have in any company that you form in Delaware. And if you use Clerky or if you use Stripe Atlas, it's just like that common stock, but it has one distinct difference. And the distinct difference is that it has a conversion right. And what that conversion right says is that if in the future, you as a founder uh, decide to sell your shares, uh, that in, in the process of selling them to a future investor in a secondary transaction, that investor, when they buy the shares, uh, they will automatically be converted into the then existing series of preferred stock. For example, if the company has already done a series B preferred stock financing, and you hold some of your founder shares in the form of founders preferred stock, if you were to sell those to a series B investor, um, either in connection with the financing or shortly thereafter, when that investor buys your founders preferred, i.e. your convertible common, um, they will own it in the form of series B preferred stock. They never take it as common stock. And that's helpful uh, for a number of reasons. First, investors wanna own preferred stock. Uh, they don't wanna own common stock. As I mentioned earlier, uh, preferred stock has a liquidation preference. So if you're doing a series B financing round, um, investors will be indifferent if they can buy uh, the founders preferred from you because they will own it in the form of series B preferred stock. The second thing is uh, many times if investors do not have the ability to buy uh, founders preferred, again, that turns into uh, series B preferred stock in my example, they will try to negotiate a discount in price. And uh, as a founder, um, you know, your objective is to achieve the highest price per share for your common stock. And if you can deliver common stock to your investors in the form of series B preferred stock, there's no reason why an investor should demand a discount off the preferred stock price. So this enables you to achieve the highest uh, price uh, per share uh, for your common stock. The, the third reason this is beneficial is it is a separate security. Uh, Founders preferred stock is a security that's different than your common stock. And if you're selling Founders preferred stock and putting a value on it, uh, the reference value being the series B preferred stock price, uh, it will not have an adverse impact on your common stock price. And again, your objective uh, in running the companies to try to keep your common stock price as low as possible, not have a big market, uh, a secondary market in your common stock and uh, be able to maintain that you know, 30 uh, or rather 70 to 85% discount on your preferred stock price. So if you're selling common stock as a founder at preferred stock prices, a valuation firm is gonna scratch their head and say, well, there's a secondary market going on in common stock and therefore uh, we can no longer afford you that significant discount. Founders Preferred allows you to keep those operations separate, use Founders Preferred for liquidity purposes. Um, so that's, those are the three main drivers of Founders Preferred stock. There are some uh, disadvantages uh, that, I can, that I can talk about. And um, you know, there's some uh, structuring considerations that we should talk about in terms of when you set up the company, what ratio of uh, your ownership should be in the form of founders preferred stock 
and uh, whether or not the founders preferred stock is subject to vesting. These are all questions that come up over time, and I'm happy to go into those additional details, Ahmad, if you think uh, that's uh, that's helpful. But you know, understanding. Um, well, let's uh, let's answer this quick question that someone asked: Does does selling founders preferred stock blow QSBS treatment? No. So uh, just as uh, with your common stock, your QSBS treatment, uh, which is the uh, rule under the Internal Revenue Code Section 1202, which says when you form a company, if you buy shares from the company, which you would do as a founder, um, and you hold those shares for five years, and of course, if you're a US taxpayer, and if the company has not uh, done anything to blow 1202 treatment, uh, which it's unlikely is gonna happen uh, for you as a founder, um, but it's something to note, that when you sell your shares, provided you've held them for five years, uh, and that includes the sale of founders preferred stock, then you would be eligible for 1202 treatment on the sale proceeds associated with that founder's preferred stock. Now, many times we see founders um, get liquidity prior to five years. And if they're getting liquidity prior to five years, then they're not gonna be able to enjoy the 1202 treatment um, on, the, on the shares. Um, so you still have to meet the five-year holding period. Um, I think one of the disadvantages to founder preferred is that many of these things like Stripe Atlas, and I think even Clerky, uh, don't do founders preferred, right? So you have to, you really have to like go get Oracle or yes. some other law firm to, yes. to make the special class. Uh, yeah, do you know, I would, do you know if any would, of these people have like any of the automated incorporators have a founders preferred option? No. And, but what I recommend is not having to slow down the formation of the company. What founders will do is go to Clerky, go to Stripe Atlas, create the company. And then we have a module at Oric where if you've gone to, Stripe Atlas or um, Clerky, uh, we've got the forms ready to go to convert a portion of your common stock into founders preferred. And that's that sort of ratio that I was talking about. So you, again- As long as you do that before the next price round, like a seed exactly. or something, before it's like, as long as your seed is a safe or something, you can still do it afterwards. Yeah, and just one feature there is bear in mind that whenever you decide to push the button on founders preferred, any person who's a stockholder of the company, they're entitled to the same ratio of founders preferred as you are. So if you are a team of two or three founders, and then you've brought on board another five or six people who are equity holders in the company before your preferred financing round, and then you decide to do founders preferred, all nine people you know, will get founders preferred in the same ratio yeah. their total holding. So this is, you know, why it's important to make these decisions earlier, yeah. unless you want to have, you know, that benefit uh, for some of the early employees of the company, which is not unusual either. Yeah. Um, I guess like a couple of questions that are related, like why not just convert all the founder stock into founders preferred? And if not do all of it, what is the current correct ratio? If there is a correct ratio to do it? Yeah, I think there is a correct ratio, uh, which is, uh, and what we see most of the time is to have 15% of your holdings as founders preferred and 85% as common stock. The reason you don't have 100% founders preferred is founders preferred for tax purposes cannot be subject to vesting. 
And this is also an important thing for founders to consider because you know, you're coming together with a group of people, uh, some of whom you've worked with before in other enterprises, some of whom uh, you may not have worked with. And um, if someone leaves the company very shortly after it's formed, and they're part of that initial team and they have 15% of their holdings subject to founders preferred, then um, they're gonna keep those shares. Uh, whereas um, uh, the, one of the main reasons for vesting is not just how investors will view vesting, uh, but it is a governing mechanism uh, between a team of founders uh, such that if um, you know one person leaves the company, uh, the company will have the right to repurchase the unvested shares and then those uninvested shares basically get retired, uh, but the ownership is equally divided among um, the remaining founders of the company. So when I'm representing a, a founder team and they're just starting a company, um, you know, I point that out, that they need to understand that um, the higher the percentage of founders preferred, um, the greater the risk of a free rider problem uh, by one founder who you know, decides that um, they really don't need to contribute the same amount of elbow grease into the enterprise because their their shares are already fully vested. Yeah, is there any advantage to founders preferred beyond like doing a secondary at some point? Is there any other kind of tertiary <laughs> advance advantage that's not like a secondary offering for the founder? Well, there are there are some advantages, and and sometimes we've deployed them in some unique circumstances um, but the fact that the founder team can control or has control over a separate series of stock uh, means that um, uh, you can in the future if you wanted to um, amend that series of preferred stock to have uh, additional rights that the common stock which the founders own and control, usually they control the common stock as well. But the common stock, as you know, will get distributed over time. It'll be the common stock underlying an option plan. It'll be a common stock that you may offer to uh, lenders, um, you know, other warrant holders, uh, consultants, advisors, that um, uh, assuming there's the right corporate governance uh, approvals in place, the, the founder's preferred stock could be amended to do things like superior voting rights, uh, impose a liquidation preference. Um, uh, so it does give the founders a tool to achieve things with their capital structure that they otherwise you know, would not be able to do with the common stock. If they did with the common stock, everyone who's a holder of common stock would have those same rights. So it's a way to, you know, in the future, impose some benefits on the founding team if that were necessary. Uh, I've talked to some founders that know about founders preferred, but they don't do it because they think investors will get scared off by that. Uh, is that a factor you think? Like investors perception of founders preferred is, is like a fact of a reason not to do it? No, I don't think um, the perception of investors not liking it is a reason not to do that. I also think uh, there is the, the perception that investors don't like founders preferred is actually not correct. Um, and, and interesting, I was in a um, meeting, a board meeting with a client one time and the company was doing really well. The founders wanted to um, get some liquidity on their shares. Sequoia is represented on the board of the company. 
they wanted to buy some shares. And one of the partners at Sequoia asked me, um, it sure would be great. Uh, I wonder if we have founders preferred stock in this company uh, because they wanted to buy and uh, they would much rather hold preferred stock, as I mentioned earlier, than, uh, than common stock. Um, unfortunately, in that case, the company did not have founders preferred. But I think so long as you keep the founders preferred ratio to 15%, then it's not a problem. Why 15%? Um, historically, when you negotiate preferred stock financing agreements with companies, there had been a uh, exit provision in the right of first refusal and co-sale agreement that said that founders have the right to sell uh, a de minimis percentage of their shares. Um, and, and this applied to common stock, uh, a de minimis percentage of their shares without subjecting those shares to the preferred investor right of first refusal. And typically going back in the history of Silicon Valley and the way these forms sort of evolved, the maximum de minimis percentage that most investors would agree to was 15%. And, and that is sort of, I think, the comfort level of investors in terms of what they will permit founders to get early liquidity on before a liquidity event of the company. So by setting founders preferred at 15% and no higher, I don't think you're setting, sending a signal that you want to get out of the company um, you know, earlier than normal. It's really using that same 15% concept uh, that historically has been a standard you know, in Silicon Valley. Um, I guess just a tactical question. If you only have common stock and you haven't done a preferred round and you want to do founders preferred, what's like a rough price cost for like getting that conversion done? To actually implement founders preferred? Yeah. You know, if it's, if it's a Delaware company, if it's formed on Clerky uh, or Stripe Atlas, if there's only a couple of founders, yeah. um, you know, it's three to $5,000. Um, the main decision that needs to be made is Typically, the common stock is already subject to vesting, a four-year vesting schedule. And so that vesting schedule has to be amended um, in connection with the founder's preferred uh, implementation because the, um, the new founder's preferred will not be subject to vesting. So there's some amendment of existing documents that need to take place as part of that. But it's not a hugely expensive thing to do. Got it. Uh, and someone is also asking, uh, would it be annoying to see Rizé investors if they are, want to reset vesting? Uh, I would just answer that and say, if any Series A investor wants to reset your last 15% of vesting, you can tell them to <laughs> go somewhere else because that is Pound, a pound sale. <laughs> exactly. Pound sale. Let's, 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 I was just going to say, as, as part yeah. of that negotiation, you know, I would never want to reset the 15%. Yeah, no way. But you can always play with the 85% and put a, you know, five. I would actually say just never reset this. <laughs> I, I should say, though, that um, what's the downside? If an investor says there's no way we're going to invest in this company because you have founders preferred, well, the simple way to fix that is founders preferred is convertible at the option of the holder in the common. Yeah. So you can, you can wipe it away with the, with the, um, with the uh, uh, gesture of a pen simply by. Uh, forcing the conversion of the founders preferred in the comment, and then it, it it disappears. So it should not be an impediment ever to a financing round. Got it. All right, let's talk about board composition. Um, 
what is the what you, like i think one point where like board composition starts mattering is like you're about to go into like raising a series a uh and like what do you think is like an ideal board like pre the series a raise which right. like, puts you in the best position yeah yes does it make sense to to pack the court you know have uh, have 15 founders on your board of directors um i don't i don't recommend that but what i see I if we should people, call it pack the court <laughs> that's a very pc joe uh but what i what i recommend in in most cases is at least two founders uh on the board and those founders are representative of the uh, common stock again for the foreseeable future of the company uh, the founders will hold a majority of the common stock um, it's okay also to have three founders on the board seldom are there more than three founders on the board and i think you know that would send the wrong signal to the company if you had uh, to the investors you had four or five founders on the board but two or three is is a is an okay number and then the objective is when you bring an investor uh, on board uh, first of all it's unusual for any investor to be a board member unless they're buying a significant block of preferred stock so if you're doing a safe financing or a convertible note financing and someone insists on being a board member of the company uh, that's kind of a red flag it's unless you're putting you know five million dollars or more in the company even in the form of a safe or convertible note, um, you know, I think you should, should ask yourselves, why do they need to be a board member? They can be a board observer, but the objective, one of the advantages of companies raising capital as convertible notes or safes is um, that you don't have to give control of your board away, you know, in order to raise capital in these kind of early stage seed financing structures. But once you get to preferred stock, you're going to negotiate um, a whole host of rights that investors will want. I mentioned liquidation preference earlier. Ahmad mentioned maybe they want to revisit some of the vesting schedules, but um, investors, the lead investor will typically also want to have a board seat. And typically the lead in, only the lead investor has a board seat. So in most companies, you end up with two founders and one uh, preferred investor, three board members in total is a, um, good number uh, and you know any more than that in an early stage I think makes your corporate governments uh, a bit cumbersome but with that number it means that the founders are in control of the board and well, I guess like I don't know if it's obvious to people why why should the founder try to be in control of the board and like is it bad if you you know you do a series B and there's two VCs on there or if you do a series C or something there's three VCs on there like when is it when is it a bad yeah. bad thing for a founder yeah ultimately it's sort of like a a constitutional um topic uh which is very simply put that um one of the founders is going to be the ceo of the company and the only body that's able to fire the ceo is the board of directors and early early on in the life of a company um the the founders control the board so that they cannot be fired as ceo there will come a point in time where after you've raised a significant amount of capital perhaps you've brought on another investor um, you could end up with two investors on the board two founders on the board um, even at that juncture the two investors could not fire 
uh, the CEO because that would be two out of four, it's not a majority. Um, but there will come a point in time where it is expected that um, the, founder, the founder team does not represent a majority and that, they, that the CEO could be uh, fired. Uh, but the principal reason to uh, hold on to control is, is, is uh, that reason. Um, there will be, as part of the financing round, a number of rights that the investors will negotiate where even though founders control the board, it doesn't mean that founders can do whatever they want in terms of buying other companies, issuing equity to others, doing another financing round, uh, amending employment contracts. Uh, even if founders control the board, investors, if they're uh, experienced and, and have good legal counsel, they will still negotiate a dozen or so items that says um, their representative on the board, uh, his or her consent will be necessary if founders try to do this, or the consent of the stockholder at the stockholder level will be necessary uh, for these type of corporate actions. So in, in my perspective, founder control of the board is not so that founders can do things, uh, because as I just mentioned, um, investors will make sure that the important things will require their consent anyway. The reason to have founder control of the board is to make sure that things can't be done to you. And that main thing is terminating the CEO. Uh, a couple of people asking about like, what if you're a solo founder? Does that mean you only get one founder seat? Like, can one founder sit on multiple seats or control multiple seats? Yes. Okay, these are great questions. So if you're one founder, um, you can designate, there's two, two different ways to approach this. If you're one founder, you can designate in your company a certificate of incorporation, how many seats are represented by the common stock. Uh, so the most standard way is if you're one founder, you have the right to appoint yourself or you, you can, you would appoint yourself. And then you also have the right to appoint someone else because you control the common stock. So uh, you would appoint, um, you know, either uh, another employee or it could be someone who is outside the company who is an industry expert uh, that you that you trust a former founder um, you know to join your board and if you don't like that person you can replace them because you control that seat that seat is controlled by the vote of a majority of the common stock so you can designate you know one seat in addition to yours perhaps two seats in addition to yours that you have voting control over that's that's the simplest and most standard approach the other thing is is under delaware law delaware also gives us the flexibility to provide that a board member can actually have multiple votes so you could provide that the founder seat the founder seat of commissac is actually entitled to two votes at all times and um in some ways that's almost better than appointing someone and not being 100% sure whether they're always gonna vote alongside you. The downside, however, to uh, the two vote per board seat, and, and in fact, I've had some situations where we had uh, the founder seat uh, with three votes. Um, the downside to that is, that is a right that investors will see as unusual. Uh, when they invest in the company, they will try to cut back at that. They may see things like, okay, well, you can have two votes on these items, but you can't have two votes on who the CEO of the company is going to be. Um, 
or they may limit it in time. I had one company where they agreed to that as part of their financing, but then they also agreed that within 12 months that um, that two vote structure would disappear. So um, my recommendation is to go with um, you know multiple seats that the founder has control over. And what that means is in, as part of a financing round, uh, an investor may say, okay, we don't like that you've got another employee on the board in that seat. Uh, we would prefer that you have an industry representative, someone who's independent, and then it's okay you know, to replace that person with um, an industry expert, someone who's independent, but, it, but at the end of the day, you still have the power to replace that seat, you know, the power to nominate and to replace that seat, and that's, um, you know, I think, an important consideration. Yeah, I think another part of this is also just before financing, the better your position is, the easier it is to keep that position, uh, right? Like if you start off with three, three seats, you're more likely to keep them. Uh, Absolutely. The, they have to kind of negotiate them away from you. Yeah. Uh, sure. some, someone asks like, you know, let's say you are doing a series C or something and you don't want to give up board control. Like, do people just go from like three seats to four seats if the new VC wants? Like, is that common where you like basically keep issuing founder seats to keep board control? Yeah. Um, typically, the, the compromise uh, situation there is to agree that, um, you know, the you can issue, you would create a new seat. Um, the investors are not going to like that it would be a common only seat that you have full control over where you could appoint anyone that you wanted to that seat. But um, you know, in order to make sure the investors don't have control, um, you add uh, a, a new seat and you negotiate the mechanics around how that seat is appointed. Typically, you would wanna make sure that it's someone who you as the founder nominate and you know, that, it's, that it's a person who is, the investors would require as an independent you know, industry expert but you still have the power to nominate that person and you have the power to remove that person. So it could be a um, seat that's determined by the common and preferred together as a class, um, but then there's an overriding agreement called a voting agreement as part of these financing rounds that governs who nominates and who can replace. And that's an important uh, thing to focus on, you know, in order to uh, maintain, um, uh, control over that seat. Uh, I'm guessing you're going to say this is like a personal question. Someone asked, like, should you forgo funding uh, if you don't want to lose control of the board? Uh, it, yes, if that's your singular focus, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, you know, I mean, Imad, you've been through this multiple times that, you know, the, the, the most common, I think, process of building companies is um, you know, involves dilution, involves dilution of ownership, dilution of voting rights, dilution of control. And as you mentioned earlier, your objective is to minimize dilution in all of those considerations. So when you're building a company, you want to, if possible, raise capital at the highest valuation to minimize ownership dilution. Um, you want to minimize um, dilution of voting rights. Uh, usually that's done by granting stock options to employees instead of giving employees uh, voting rights up front, um, and you want to minimize dilution at the control level, and that is by maintaining control over your board. But all of these factors are, uh, you know, kind of kind of related. But uh, on the other hand, it takes capital, you know, to raise to build a company, 
And so you have to trade those things off uh, against one another. And I think, you know, the process of raising capital is, it, it, it is, you are forming a partnership, a long-term partnership in particular with your first major investor. So my advice to founders is to, you know, your investors are gonna be doing due diligence on you before they invest. And it's important that you do due diligence on them. You know, talk to other founders, talk to Imad, talk to other founders and their experience, you know, working with these lead investor groups and in particular the sponsoring partner with that, within that venture fund and, you know, what their track record is and, in, is, and do you trust them for the long run? Because ultimately it comes down to, um, you know, a game of trust between you and your investors. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's also been a trend where these growth investors have been like kind of selling like founder friendliness and they won't take a board seat, right? Like I think yeah. DST was kind of famous for not taking a board seat at like when they funded Facebook and other people. Uh, so I yeah. guess that's an option nowadays where founders can go for these like more founder friendly growth investors. Yeah, I'm, I would just caution you that um, the devil's in the details because many of these investors who say no board seat um, you know, when you look at the investment documents, they have contractual rights over just about anything, um, you know, that, that you want, you need a hall pass, you know, to do just about anything. So, um, you know, it's not just board level control. It's also stockholder rights to, to pay attention to. Got it. Um, cool. I wanted to talk about kind of dual classes of uh, shares and like extra voting rights. And someone's also asking about the question. So yeah. I guess like just on a high level, what are, how do you get like, you know, Google or Facebook has like, I think 10X, uh, yeah. the founders have 10X votes. Like, how does that mechanic work? Does that happen yeah. at the early stage? When does it happen? Right, yeah. And, and this is something in, in, this is my point of view, but I think it's played out in the numbers, is that, that um, dual class from that perspective, dual class when it comes to voting rights is not something to worry about right now. Um, it's usually something that's put in place prior to an IPO. And the main objective in you know, the 10X versus 1X uh, voting rights is to make sure that uh, the um, early investors in the company and the founders in the company pre-IPO retain as much control as possible post-IPO because an IPO is also a dilutive event, uh, both in terms of ownership and voting rights you know, with a disparate group of investors um, who, you know, may not have the best long-term interests of the company in mind. And uh, that's why you see, you know, many companies that have dual class stock um, put in place on the eve of their IPO, again, to ensure that the, um, you know, the investors in the IPO are buying, you know, the class B common stock that has the 1X voting versus the um, versus the 10x voting. I do have companies that will put in the 10x, 1x ahead of time, um, but investors will usually not want to buy the 1x. And so many times we'll put the 10x, 1x in place ahead of time. And the only constituents who get the 1x are the employees. And uh, that will be the same common stock that's used in the IPO, but the investors will almost always want uh, 10x uh, for themselves. Uh, another variant is when does the 10x actually spring into action? In some companies um, where the 
where the uh, founders have a lot of leverage. Um, the investors have agreed to have the founders with 10X, but they provided that that 10X doesn't actually spring into action until there's an IPO. Um, but the most likely uh, situation is that the company will have um, the common stock, the founders preferred stock and the preferred stock. And then uh, just prior to an IPO, we'll put in place uh, 10X with regard to the um, stock, all stock that exists prior to the IPO and 1X for the stock that's being issued in the IPO. Got it. So, so this the deal class is really about, you know, we've IPO'd some random people you've never met are gonna own like voting shares. Mm -hmm. And like that might be scary to the long-term vision of the company. So keep the real vote among like founders and like the original kind of backers. Yeah, and that's, that's, you know, that's the case in Google. Um, there, there's another mechanism to have control over voting rights, which is through proxy agreements. And we have some companies that do not have dual class, again, the 10X, 1X, but what the founders have done is they, as part of their employee stock plan, uh, they provided that when the employees exercise their stock options uh, into the voting shares, that the employees automatically grant as part of that exercise documentation, they automatically grant a voting proxy uh, to one of the founders over their shares. And um, that's an interesting mechanism. And I've also had that get extended to investors where perhaps the lead investor will not agree to have their shares subject to the proxy. But when you're bringing, when you're doing second closings and you're bringing on um, uh, individuals or other angel investors in the company, um, you know, following an investment by Sequoia, um, people, you know, just will um, agree to just about anything, um, you know, to, to have a seat at the table that you would, um, you know, have them sign as part of their investment documentation, a proxy agreement that gives uh, you, the founder, the right to vote their shares. Uh, most you, of the, does the lead investor dislike that? Because now you you're like basically voting like your common shares and like some percentage of the preferred? Yeah, some do. Some do dislike it, but I, this is something that I would make sure to get agreement on as part of the financing round that any subsequent investors, you know, in a, in a financing uh, will be subject to a proxy. Um, the lead investor will usually be okay with that. And the, uh, the lead investor will still, in most cases, control the preferred stock. Uh, even if, you know, 10 or 20% of the preferred stock is subject to a proxy granted to the founders, the lead investor will absolutely object to it if uh, the proxies held by the founders tally up to more than 50% of the preferred stock. So th what's, what's important is that this is a way to maintain, you know, modicums of control uh, uh, for essentially the future IPO. Uh, because in an IPO, all preferred stock converts into common stock. Um, but an investor will object to it if it is a way to control the, their preferred and potentially uh, subject, subject them to amendments in the future that could take away their rights. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess the last subject I wanted to cover, and there's a bunch of questions, uh, but I think this is an interesting subject to cover, is... It's kind of, yeah, sometimes founders are 
even relatively early on in their company get like massively diluted down. So they have like less than like 5%. Uh, uh, there's you know, people, many people who've IPO'd with like less than 2%, even as founders. Uh, what have you seen in terms of kind of equity refreshers for founders? What, when, does, when can founders kind of push for those to you know, try to get like more equity after they've been you know, diluted heavily? Yeah, um, I, I do see founders going back to the board and asking for significant blocks of equity. And typically that doesn't happen until they've exhausted their four-year vesting schedule. Um, but if they are dropping below levels that are representative of what, um, you know, an outside person would receive, you know, for example, um, you know, a CEO uh, coming on board, you know, would receive somewhere for, for a company that's gone through a couple of rounds of financing, you know, would receive somewhere between seven and 10% of the company. Um, if the company has, um, because it's had a slower start, but it's had significant capital needs, um, has diluted the founders a lot, then uh, there's good justification based on market uh, data uh, for the founders to say, look, I need to be brought up at least to levels that you know a CEO would be brought up to. I've also seen situations where um, the founder may decide to step aside as CEO, uh, you know, stay on the board and be uh, CSO, you know, chief strategy officer or COO. And um, as a principal, you know, the company is going to bring on a new CEO and the founder, you know, is just not liking the fact that someone else could join the company who has a greater percentage ownership than they. And I think as well, the, uh, even the board and the investors uh, have an interest in maintaining parity of ownership. And uh, many times I've seen as part of a uh, new CEO coming on board that a founder will be re-upped in their equity position to be at least on parity with, um, with the new CEO. So those, those are circumstances in which um, you know, the company is perhaps not growing as quickly uh, as, um, as you'd like. Uh, the company's raised a lot of capital. Uh, founders been diluted, uh, but still, you know, important contributor to the team. And the investors want to make sure the founders incentivized because uh, they've already vested in their shares and they could move on and do something else. Um, there, there are two other situations that I want to describe really uh, briefly, which is company has the potential to achieve significant value. And um, uh, I have had situations that Elon Musk uh, is the best example in the marketplace uh, right now, where um, the founder is so incredibly valuable uh, to the company that the investors want to make sure that they're devoting as much time and attention uh, to create value. They know this founder can create value uh, for the company. And in these cases, I've seen um, boards agree to grant uh, blocks of equity to founders, usually somewhere between two and 5% of the company uh, in the form of performance vesting grants. The earlier grants I was talking about uh, that help achieve parity are standard four-year time-based vesting. But I have um, seen performance-based performance vesting grants which says uh, we're gonna grant you sizable stock options, 
but those stock options will vest uh, based on valuation milestones that you achieve uh, for the company. If the company achieves more than a you know, $500 million valuation, then 20% of your stock option will vest. If it's a billion dollar, another 20% uh, will, will vest. Uh, these valuation metrics uh, can be measured based on uh, valuation of a financing round, valuation of an acquisition, valuation of an IPO. Um, and so I've, I've helped put these in place in a number of companies, these performance-based uh, vestings for high growth companies that have the potential for really high valuation. And then the last uh, possibility is uh, management carve-out plans. And this is a situation where um, companies have a uh, high degree of likelihood of acquisition, uh, but companies have raised a lot of capital uh, such that the aggregate liquidation preference of the investors is um, very high in relation to the acquisition price. And um, if the aggregate liquidation preference is very high in relation to the acquisition price, the common stock equity is not worth very much. Even if you own 50% of the common stock, um, investors get most of the proceeds on sale anyway. So the, the only practical solution there, other than getting investors to decrease their liquidation preference, which is almost never gonna happen, the only practical solution is to put a management incentive plan in place, which is basically like a bonus plan that says, if the company is sold for between 100 and $150 million, then the management team, which includes the founders, will get um, 10% of the proceeds. If the company is sold for greater than $150 million, then the management team will get 15% of the proceeds. Um, and just remember, in these kinds of management incentive plans, um, those are taxed at ordinary income rates because that's uh, considered compensation. Whereas the other outcomes I talked about is equity. And the objective there is to try to get those taxed at capital gains rates, the lower rates, rather than um, ordinary income rates. One other thing I've heard of, I don't know if this is very uncommon, is when you're doing a new round of funding, and if you have multiple VCs that are trying to like win the round, one of them might offer uh, equity refresher to the founders as part of that round of funding. Is that like, what are the mechanics of that? Is that common? Yes. Well, that is common. And it is sleeves off the vest of the new investor. Um, again, it's a partnership. As I mentioned earlier, the new investor from a due diligence perspective wants to be sure that the founder has enough skin in the game and enough equity. And I've seen situations where investors were concerned about making an investment because the founders just did not own enough of the company. And so they condition as part of their term sheet that the founders need to receive a bigger stock option grant in the company before they close their investment. That uh, dilution comes off the back of existing investors, not the new investor. And um, so it is a way, you know, as part of negotiating, you know, for you as a founder, if you feel like um, you don't have enough skin in the game uh, to work with the new investor to have as part of that term sheet that you'll receive a new stock option grant in the company. And, and thanks Ahmad for bringing that up because that is, that is um, something that happens, again, in connection with the finance around, but it does have, uh, it does, uh, happen often enough.
Yeah. And that's quite a nice one for the founder because they have like, they can blame it on the new investor. Exactly. Uh, the new investor also likes it because they're not getting diluted by it. So it's like win-win. I mean, I guess it's worse for existing shareholders. Right. Yeah. But it works. Uh, awesome. I know we're overrunning a little bit. Do you have another five minutes? I do. All right. Let me, let me see if we can knock out a couple more of these kind of questions people ask. Okay. Uh, this one's kind of fun. Uh, I'm running a holacracy software agency. Uh, do you have any insights on legally sharing profits uh, and have them as real owners? That's a fun um, one. So, you know, um, um, I think that um, what's important is that there's really only two ways in which to incentivize people. One is through, uh, one is through equity. And the and the other is through uh, the other is through cash compensation. If you have a lot of constituents in your organization, um, it is it is um, difficult to incentivize people through equity, and uh, particularly if people don't have a service relationship uh, with the company. Um, whenever you're issuing equity in a company. Um, uh, there are U.S. securities laws that you have to abide by. So my main guidance there is is um, equity is not for everyone in an organization, and you need to make sure that the people who um, you know receive equity have a service relationship or an investment uh, relationship with the company. Otherwise, you need to think about other incentive schemes. Yeah. Um I guess this is just a general market thing. What is the market like right now in terms of kind of, I mean, you see a lot of companies raising money. Yeah. Uh, what's the general market like and how kind of, I guess like founder friendly are the terms right now versus like kind of, you know, I guess yeah. there's, there's like overall ships sometimes. Yeah, no, it's, it's surprisingly founder friendly. Um, first of all, in terms of existing companies, we saw a lot of uh, financing activity over the last six months with, uh, you know, COVID uh, in, in March uh, really taking root. Many companies decided they needed to raise capital. You know, if, if you were going to raise capital, you had better do it quickly. And so from March over the last six months, many companies have raised capital. So there was a lot of financing activity and, and, you know, the good news is, is that there were investors out there, you know, doubling down on their investments in, in good companies. I mean, on the other side, I've seen a, a number of companies that could not raise capital and they, you know, they've decided to fold. But uh, for, for investors who wanted to double down, uh, there's been a significant amount of financing activity. In fact, it's kind of dropped off because we were so busy. We didn't expect we were going to be so busy. Uh, but um, it's, it's all because of this rush to raise capital uh, due to the unknowns around COVID. Um, that's for existing companies. Uh, with regard to Series A financings, um, you know, over the last couple of years, venture funds have raised billions of dollars that they're sitting on they needed to deploy. And, you know, the mantra is that um, in bad economic times, that's usually when investors make the best investment decisions. And, um, you know, I'm sort of the Stour uh, investors, you know, the Kleiners, the Sequoias, of the world, I've seen them extremely active in um, in new rounds, and the kinds of terms that they're putting down haven't changed from the Series A terms that we saw 
pre-COVID. Um, where we have seen changes is uh, companies that you know, needed to raise capital. They already had um, a number of financing rounds. Uh, they were struggling and they couldn't find uh, capital from outside investors. Um, insiders you know, put down new investment terms that were more favorable uh, to them than, than previously. But you know, I think now is a great time to start a company. Um, I think you should expect founder-friendly terms. I would recommend you know, partnering with the best investors. They are still very active in the space. And um, you know, think about some of these tools um, you know, that, uh, that we've been talking about today and you know, consider putting them in place uh, early on in the life of your company. Cool, John, this was awesome. Thanks for taking the time. If someone wants to, again, I, yeah, there was a lot of questions I didn't get to. If someone wants to <laughs> ask those questions from you or work with Auric, what's the best way for them to kind of get in touch? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer questions. Um, you know, I can be found on the Auric website. Uh, my email also is jbatista at auric.com. Uh, we also launched a Series A ready tool um, which you should take a look at uh, on our on our website. Also through long-term stock exchange, um, uh, we have partnered with them on a number of tools, uh, which you should check out on their website um, uh, with regard to financing of companies. If you are a Clerky uh, user, uh, Clerky also has a very good primer uh, on a lot of these topics that we talked about that um, I and others at Oric help co-author uh, with Clerky, so you can get access to that primer. But there's a lot of resources between Oric, LTSE, and Clerky uh, that can also provide. You're, you're really repping all your companies here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, awesome. Great, great, great seeing you, John. Um, thanks you everyone too, for joining. All right. Okay, my pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.